Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for June 2nd, 2020. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, today we are going to discuss the very serious killing of George Floyd. We're going to examine the historical context of police violence and racism in this country and hopefully use it to contextualize current protests. We are going to try to make sure that this is done in good faith and hopefully do our small part to keep you all adequately informed on this extraordinarily important topic. Yeah. We hope to present everything in good faith to be as accurate as possible in what we talk about. Um, while we don't come from the ivory tower, we can, uh, we feel like we can speak with some moral conviction with this. Um, I mean, we could still be wrong, but this, this, uh, event has moved us in a way that we haven't been moved in a while. And like a lot of people, we've, uh, We've had a tough time dealing with it, uh, just the heinousness of it. So uh, from the onset, we'll, th- this is going to be a heavy episode. So um, if you want to keep listening, buckle up. Yes, and if you, uh, we understand that there are so many perspectives here and we have limited perspectives. So this is one especially where We'd love your feedback either through socials or email because in an event of this magnitude, there's only so much that two guys with a podcast can cover. So let's keep the dialogue open and we'd love to hear from anyone, especially those more specifically affected than maybe we are. Definitely. So, Joe, how would you like to start us off today? Well, Evan, so... I have a brief history of race in this country, more specifically lynching, but I think it will circle back around to present day because it, it's, it all has to be taken as a whole. You know, there, there are, there, it really started at enslavement way back when they first were brought over as slaves. The, uh, the African natives and picking anywhere in the middle to choose as like a starting point for these issues is, is tough and incomplete. But the way it goes is Africans were brought over from Africa as slaves to work on plantations in America That institution of slavery lasted nearly 200 years and ended at the end of the Civil War. At the end of the Civil War, these African Americans were, these black people were freed um, from slavery, but that does not mean that their social ails were cured. There was a brief moment where they were able to enjoy full citizenship, to vote, to live their lives freely, but that was shortly cut off after Reconstruction ended. And 
came the institution of Jim Crow, which put on strict social rules for how black people could behave in southern uh, cities. I mean, it also happened in northern states, but not to the same degree. Uh, The version of racism that northern states imposed on black people was not as rigid as Jim Crow. But Jim Crow laws greatly prohibited uh, or clamped down on the you know, the lives that black people could live. And one way that Jim Crow was enforced was not through the courts, not through the police actions, but through extrajudicial mobs that came and did what became to be known as lynching. Now, lynching happened before the Civil War, Lynching has happened to people who aren't black, but the the institution of lynching has almost always been involved in promoting white supremacy uh, as one of its main goals, instilling fear into the society as a whole that they will not tolerate uh, tolerance or positive black feelings because while blacks were lynched, it was to instill fear in the black community. When white people were lynched um, at a much lesser degree, it was almost always because they were black sympathizers. So now to what lynching really was, which was a mob justice in quotes, very big quotes, that uh, oftentimes led to the death of mostly black men, where they would beat them, they would torture them, and then they would hang them from a tree, uh, prompting, oh, I had it here. Oh, who? Billy Holiday? Yeah, Billy Holiday to write the strong uh, song called Strange Fruit, where the fruit was hanging bodies, hanging black bodies from trees after being lynched. And these weren't like the kind of acts of the KKK that we have heard about, where it's like, you know, they do it under the cover of night and they secretly kill a black man and, you know, scurry away. No, a lynching was a very public event. It was drawn out. It was in a public place. People showed up. There were photographers who took pictures. And, hell, in the case of some, even extra trains were scheduled to come to places in order to meet the volume of people who wanted to go and see the lynching. It was a show. It was a show of dominance over a minority group that could not stand up to the majority, at least at the time. And these lynchings were just so Devastating. It was an act of terrorism on the black populations in America. It was a way to show 
that they did not have the freedoms, that they did not have the ability to live their lives like everybody else did. Because if they broke those conventions, if they went against the social norms that were set, then there was a chance that a mob could just show up and kill them and the whole town would be there. No one seeking justice in a, you know, no one seeking due process. And it was just so heinous. Um, one of the most famous lynchings was of Emmett Till. Um, he was a 14 year old boy, uh, originally from Chicago, uh, traveling to see his family down in the South. And he allegedly whistled at a white woman. And that was great enough offense that he was lynched. He was gathered up and killed, brutally killed, all because he may have made gestures towards a white woman. And his mother, you know, trying to make the most of it, held his funeral with an open casket so all the world could see the brutality that was taken upon Emmett Till. Another famous lynching was one of Sam Hoes in Atlanta. And it's not so much uh, the lynching of Sam, which is tragic, but one notable uh great thinker of the 19th century W.E.B. Du Bois uh, had an interaction with it. Sam Hose had been lynched. Body parts had been torn apart from him. And W.E.B. Du Bois had originally, he was the father, some say, of sociology. And he was working on a great work that was to persuade white people that, hey, black people aren't all that bad. We're good people. We have these contributions to society. We have value. And he was taking the approach that it was maybe good faith disagreement that people were racist Maybe they just didn't understand that, you know, black people had worth and he was going to set to prove it. But one day when he was in Atlanta, he saw in the window of a grocery store the burned knuckles of Sam Hose in the window. Just there on display like some sort of morbid trophy. And from that, he came to realize that racism wasn't just a simple misunderstanding. It was deeper. It was hatred. It was not something that you could just convince somebody was bad. You know, he said one could not be calm, cool, detached scientists while Negroes were lynched, murdered, and starved. He realized that the cure wasn't simply telling people the truth. It was inducing them to act on the truth. And from the era of lynching, 
we went on. Lynching became a thing of the past for the most part. But we moved into a new era of controlling, uh, you know, state controlling of the African-American populace. Some theorize that the modern death penalty and the somewhat lenient use in most southern states is what quelled lynching. But we have since moved into a system where, you know, the police powers greatly target African-Americans more often and their punishment is often much more brutal leading up to the death penalty, um, which is also the set, the central case of Brian Stevens book, uh, just mercy. And, and just as a side note, um, I learned a good part of this, um, that earlier this spring, I went to the, um, National Memorial for Peace and Justice, and I believe it was uh, Montgomery, Alabama, um, a monument to lynching in America, where o- almost 4,000 African Americans were lynched over the course of the history of the United States, and there on great pillars are all the names of those people. And it's quite powerful. And if you're ever in the area, I highly recommend that you visit it. But that is lynching and the history of race punishment in the United States in as brief as could possibly be. I really appreciate the historical perspective because so often you hear people who try to claim that slavery ended so and so many years ago and therefore everything is fine and anyone who complains is just whining and asking for a handout but when you take the full history in context what you understand is that slavery is the most heinous immoral affront to god and mankind that the united states has ever imposed that the world has ever imposed and to justify that white people had to convince themselves that black people were inhuman that they were chattel or eventually that they were three-fifths of a person to count for population and even when the slaves were freed this did not automatically change the hearts and minds of people who had this deeply ingrained belief, this deeply ingrained and deeply wrong belief. Changing something that is so deep-seated takes time, and maybe it takes several generations just for someone to acknowledge that black people are people, and then several more generations to get a lot of people on board with obtaining more rights for black people. And what we're finding is that we are not at the point of the post-racial society. We are not even close. Slavery ended hundreds of years ago. Well, it will take more before we reach true equality. We are on a spectrum of of history that is still being written and 
things are thankfully getting better, but the wounds and old racism still is very much alive and has a direct impact on the social structure that we can observe today. Yeah, ra- or uh, slavery is probably second only to genocide in manifestations of racism. Like, it is about as worse as you can get. So getting rid of slavery is was a very good thing. But that deme- did not mean that racism went away. Um, there is even a popular... Uh, I mean, I don't know if anybody actually ever fleshes it out to be like this, but there is kind of a common perception that because the North fought against the South for slavery, that means that the North wasn't racist, which isn't the case. The North fought against slavery. They didn't fight against racism. The people of the North were also very racist. It yes. was it was believed that that you know they held a, a a somewhat nuanced view that yes black people aren't worth a damn that they aren't hum you know they aren't worthy citizens of the country but they are human and humans shouldn't be enslaved you know that was the base level. You know, it wasn't that racism ended and we, you know, quelled all racism. That just wasn't the case. And every time that we have made great pushes in society to try and stamp out racism or racist institutions, it comes at great cost to do. It takes a lot of effort. It takes a lot of ideas and it takes the mobilization of a lot of people. When Abraham Lincoln was glad-handing with the members of Congress in an attempt to get the 13th Amendment passed, one of the biggest people who he had to work on was the abolitionist Thaddeus Stevens. Thaddeus Stevens was the most progressive member of the Congress because he held the belief that black people were actually equal to white people and deserved equal rights and equal standing in society, true equality. And this idea was so politically toxic that he had to walk back his statements publicly to ensure that Northerners who agreed with the dissolution of slavery but were concerned about legitimate equality wouldn't back away from the 13th Amendment, fearing a slippery slope. So, even, as Joe said, even people who fought hard to eliminate the institution of slavery still did not believe the simple truth that black people are equal in society. And that takes hundreds and hundreds of years to erode if it even can be undone yeah it's uh and it's something we still grapple with but anyway so evan i believe you're gonna fill us in on what happened with george floyd 
Well, we will talk about what happened to George Floyd, but first I want to talk about George Floyd. The catalyst for everything that has gone on in the past week or more in this country has been due to the death of a human being, George Floyd. George Floyd was born in North Carolina, but quickly moved to Houston, where he was raised. He considered himself a Houston native. George was an athlete. He played football and basketball at both the high school and collegiate levels, playing with future NBA player Steven Jackson, who he considered like a brother to him. The team made it to the state championship game in 1992, and he continued to be an athlete through his young adult years. But George Floyd was a man of other talents as well. He dabbled as a rapper in the Houston scene, which, as many of you know, was an extremely influential music scene, as part of the Screwed Up Click, a group of rappers, all based around the DJ DJ Screw, who would sometimes create mixtapes and other recordings and performances in the Houston area. In 2014, George Floyd moved to Minnesota, looking for better economic opportunity after his release from prison. He was hired as a bouncer and was extremely popular at work. He had a reputation as a gentle giant. He would often dance poorly on purpose to make his co-workers and patrons laugh. And he volunteered to drive people home if they had had too much to drink. From what anyone says about George Floyd, he was a kind man and a productive member of his community. Unfortunately, he was laid off due to the restrictions imposed by COVID-19 on the economy and was seeking to be reestablished as gainfully employed. His mother described him as grounded and spiritual. She called him an organizer, a comforter, and an encourager. And he often filled these roles to his two children, the youngest of which being just six years old. I bring this up because so often when someone is killed by police, those who seek to deflect the responsibility from where it belongs want to paint the picture of these often men as someone who somehow deserved to be killed because of their prior actions. But George Floyd should not be remembered for his mistakes. He should be remembered as a human being. Nothing that he ever did in his life warranted a death sentence. When he was snuffed out, we lost a human soul. And that is a tragedy. I'm reminded especially of the film Fruitvale Station, which tells the real story of a man named Oscar Grant, who was murdered by police. In the film, he's played by Michael B. Jordan. And yes, Grant was an ex-con. But the film shows that he was working hard to get his life back together. In society, we need to be able to give people second chances. Oscar Grant was denied his second chance. 
George Floyd was making the most of his. And his community and his family will be forever poorer because someone decided, and it was a conscious decision, to take his life away from him for no good reason. George Floyd, proud Texan, athlete, rapper, and horrible dancer. Rest in peace. Yes. So Evan, now that we have explored who George was as a person, what happened? So here's the event timeline as best as I can make it out. On May 25th, cops were called in Minneapolis alleging the the store owner was alleging that George Floyd and a friend were trying to pay for items with a counterfeit $20 bill. The officers arrested George, took him out of his car. He was sitting in his car. We don't fully understand the circumstances that happened between the time that the police were called and they arrived, but George was still outside of the business. And he initially was not wanting to get out of his car, but as soon as he was out of his car, he was put in handcuffs and was following directions from the officers. As they were attempting as they were attempting to get him into the squad car, he fell down. We have no understanding of the instances surrounding this fall, but we do know that he was by a curb at the time. At this point, the video of the surveillance video is blocked by a by a stopped cop car. And we can't exactly tell what happens until the citizen footage picks up. What we know is that George Floyd is on the ground, not attempting to attack an officer, initially calm and growing more frantic with Officer Derek Chauvin's knee on his neck for eight minutes and 46 brutal seconds. George Floyd announces that he is struggling to breathe. He asks for air. He asks to see his mother. He worries out loud that the day may be the day that he dies. Even after becoming unresponsive, Chauvin keeps his knee on Floyd's neck for almost three full minutes. There is no circumstance that warrants this. In the first place, this is an explicitly banned restraint within the Minneapolis Police Department. Second, if George Floyd was truly resisting arrest, which there is no evidence that he was from multiple angles of footage, his threat would have been neutralized. There were two additional cops holding Floyd down, and one more standing guard. At this point, there is no justification for continuing to pin someone 
by their neck. After he became unresponsive, medical services were finally called, but it was too late, and Floyd was pronounced dead. With a great number of bystanders, video circulated wildly, and by that night, protests had begun in Minneapolis. On Wednesday, this escalated as groups, often of outside agitators, began looting and burning businesses to the ground. This culminated in the 3rd Precinct Police Building being burned, and on Thursday, the National Guard was sent in. This National Guard situation was an unmitigated clusterfuck. There didn't seem to be any direction to the mission that they were there to achieve. It got so bad that on Thursday, CNN journalist Omar Jimenez and his entire crew were arrested live on air after identifying themselves as journalists without being given an explanation as to why a clear violation of the First Amendment. On Friday, Officer Derek Chauvin was arrested and charged with third-degree murder in the killing of George Floyd. Then, across the weekend, protests spread across the country. Most major cities were engulfed in some form of protest or another. And overall, people are upset. They are angry. This video is horrific. To know that that can happen to someone in this country is not something that many people can take lying down. And you are seeing the results of this right now. Yeah, like, so getting back to, you know, the event that happened. So he was being essentially charged with using a counterfeit uh, $20 bill. Does... You know, and he stayed at the scene. He stayed at the scene for whatever reason. He didn't flee. He stayed there. The cops showed up. You know, they started talking or whatever, but they tore him out of his car for using a counterfeit $20 bill initially. And I don't, I mean, even something like that, would be too excessive for the crime. Like his crime in nature wasn't violent. And even if it was, you know, would a killing be justified for it? No. But at every step of this, since we don't have the knowledge of what else transpired, it looks like every level was escalated beyond cause whatsoever not no justifiable reason someone used a counterfeit $20 bill does that justify tearing them out from the car no maybe was he um you know even on a worst case scenario talking back to them and resisting a little bit does that justify his life being taken from him from you know having three or four officers 
pile onto his body? No, that doesn't justify anything. There's no Let's walk it back even further. Why does a police report about a counterfeit bill require multiple squad cars? Yeah. I mean, in the initial uh, 911 call, it was supposedly reported that Floyd was drunk. But even then, like, it's, you know, it only makes sense if you view it through the, the lens of that George Floyd was a scary big black man who is just inherently dangerous. That not taking him uh, seriously to the utmost level would result in the um, in harm to the community or the police officers if they didn't take every precaution to the fullest extent, which is just not necessary for that type of call. Not not even close. What? Maybe he uses a $20 bill and then you issue him a, a you know a court date or something and then he shows up for it and then what? He gets sentenced for like 30 days or something like that? That's justice. What isn't justice is a small group of people perceiving him as harmful or treating him the way that they were for no apparent reason, and taking his life, his whole life, every bit of life that he was going to live taken from him for no reason that can be justified at this time. And it it's like I couldn't imagine getting pulled from my car because of something minor that, you know, I may have done. Like, <laughs> you know, I think my plates are expired right now. That's about the level of crime of what George Floyd did. And I'm not getting pulled from my car. And then not subsequently dogpiled on. It's just ridiculous. It's a miscarriage. And there's been a lot of debate as to whether or not it's a murder or to call it a murder. And I am certainly no legal expert, but my father is, and we have not specifically discussed this case, but something that he always would tell me is that premeditation can happen in an instant. You don't have to go and make some master plot to be guilty of premeditated murder. Whatever level of resistance that George Floyd was offering, and again, from all video evidence, it appears to be excruciatingly minimal. But whatever level of resistance he was offering, it went away when he was on the ground struggling for breath. In that moment, to my eyes, premeditation occurred. Yes, and this wasn't a case like we've seen in other cases of killing of an unarmed black man where 
um, an officer shoots them in a split second. Now you can argue over and over again about whether it's justifiable to use that type of force with someone. But one thing you can always argue is that, hey, it was a wrong decision made in a split second. But this act was not made, this was not done in a split second. It was done for a long time, deliberately, over the course of minutes. As Evan said, eight minutes and 46 seconds. That is time. That is time to think about what you're doing. That is time to decide that maybe this is enough. Maybe when he stopped breathing, they could have taken, or uh, Chauvin could have taken his knee off of George Floyd's neck, but he didn't. He kept it on there. It was deliberate. And hateful. Yeah. You cannot try to tell me that you can drive your knee into another human being's neck and not have it ooze with hatred. That's what this is all about. Well, there's nothing that this is all about because it's about so much. But this is not a flight of fancy. This is not just like Joe was saying, something quick. This was something that would require extreme malice of the heart to do. And Derek Chauvin did it while three other officers abetted him. And in the video, they even mock him where he's asking to stand up and they keep saying, that's what I've wanted from you this whole time. Why don't you do it? Why don't you get up? And he can't because he is being held down. Um, the, it, it's just grotesque. I can't believe that's like, you know, even if he lived, how that could even possibly be seen as good policing. There's no way that it could be. No way at all. Now, the initial autopsy ruled that asphyxiation was not the cause of death for George Floyd, and rather that underlying health conditions were. But later, an independent autopsy concluded that asphyxiation was the cause of death. To my mind, this is an absolutely meaningless distinction. Whether or not he died because his airway was restricted, or he died because his airway was restricted and his heart didn't work as well because he was predisposed to have his heart not work as well under conditions with limited air supply. The point is, he would not be dead had Derek Chauvin not done what he did. The specific cause is irrelevant and it's a distraction to take away from the fact that the direct cause of the death was a knee in the neck for nine minutes. You know, it's it, it, it would be like arguing, oh, he just tied from internal bleeding, not from the bullet we shot in him. Like, yeah, the, the two go together. They, they caught, you know, one causes the other or can cause the other. Um, it, you know, didn't just experience internal bleeding because of the fuck of it. And 
George Floyd didn't experience cardiac arrest because, I don't know, he was hanging out, smoked too many cigarettes, was living. I don't know. No, it was because he had a knee to his neck for nearly you know, nine what's, minutes. What's the, what's the flip side of this argument here? Well, it's not our fault because a healthy person should be able to withstand that for 18 minutes. Where where do you take that it's to almost, its logical extreme? It's almost like health shame or uh, fat shaming. It's like, well, you know, if he had been at the tip top of his health, he would have survived that. Well, and exactly. But, but then well, sh- he wasn't. But then Chauvin would have just, you know, s- s- you know, kneeled on his neck for even longer. <laughs> well, it's just like saying, well, if he was vulnerable, that's on him. And that doesn't make any sense. If you, you know, if you bump into someone with osteoporosis and they fall down and they break a bone, the appropriate response isn't to say, well, you should have had stronger bones. No, if you cause damage to someone, their underlying condition is not relevant when determining culpability. You know, I'm not determining how I go about my health in case somebody comes and kneels on my neck for 10 minutes. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that we've clearly established how we feel about this. And the the video evidence is so clear that there's really not a ton in dispute. Obviously, there's a little bit we don't know from between the time that the police cruiser blocked the surveillance video and the time that the uh, citizen recording starts. But I am confident there is nothing that could have transpired during that time that would warrant a death sentence. So we are embroiled in this time where so much pain and anger has come to the surface, not just in Minneapolis, but in communities all across the country who recognize this as a problem across the board. And in times like these, it is so important to have strong leadership to unite us, to offer a path forward, and to quell the injustice that is at the root of these protests and this social upheaval. And at first it seemed like Trump kind of understood. His first statement was, after apparently seeing the video, to condemn the killing of George Floyd. Awesome! Great! But it's as if immediately after that he remembered that he had to be polarized and immediately abandoned sympathy for George Floyd and his family, abandoned an understanding of deep-seated issues of this country, and just began spouting dog whistle phrases. He tweeted, when the looting starts, the shooting starts, which was used, a specific phrase with a specific history used in 1968 by the governor of Alabama to threaten those who would protest. And you can say all you want, oh, he might not know, people don't know that phrase, but Trump is a media-savvy guy, and he knew exactly what he was doing by picking that specific phrase. And from there, he has just done what he does best, which is continue to sow chaos and division and not offer us a positive vision 
of how to fix what is so deeply broken in this country. Yeah, because, you know, Trump has expressed over his, you know, life, there seems to be a few core beliefs that he truly has and has had the entire time. And one of them is the belief in police brutality, in a maximalist uh, punishment, especially for black perpetrators. He, his introduction into the world of anything political was when he ran full-page ads in newspapers asking for the death penalty for the Central Park Five, who were a group of five teenagers who were falsely accused of committing a rape in Central Park. And he was asked, I believe it was a rape and a murder, in Central Park. And he wanted their heads. He wanted them so much. He ran, he spent a lot of money to try and persuade people that that was the case. And even after they were acquitted, still held on that he believed that they were guilty. Fully exonerated and he would not back down. And then also earlier in his presidency, he had held a few rallies with police officers because he is very popular with police officers because of these sentiments. And he basically told police officers that you got to be tough with them. I don't have the exact quote, but I'm remembering that there was a time where he was standing in front of a whole bunch of police officers told them that he had their backs and for them to use excessive force because that's what she needed to do. And even through this, he has been trying to gin up more extreme police actions. Today, it came out that he was calling up governors and telling them that you need to dominate them. You need to dominate the protesters. Otherwise, you are weak and we will send in American troops to, I don't know, I mean, I don't even know what the end goal is to stop the protesters or to stop protesting or to restore order. Um, I don't, you know, like you said earlier, we don't even know what the end goal is, but it is true that one of Trump's greatest beliefs is that the police have the immunity and should exercise greatly the ability to use excessive force. And I definitely agree that that is a common through line. But for as many things as Trump has been consistent on, he flip-flops on a hell of a lot. And I think this is a hell of a way to talk about these protesters, especially when you consider his commentary about recent protests in the past. Remember, at a white supremacist rally in Charlottesville, he called those protesters very fine people. Just recently, when... 
Wait, I want to I want to stop armed. there. Like, you know, we we talk about on this podcast trying to introduce good faith. And even the best good faith argument on the Charlottesville protesters where at some point he even clarified that the very good people were the protesters from the nights earlier who held or carried torches and chanted, we w- Jews will not replace us. Those yes. were who he was referring to as very fine people. Not even the day of protests, the protests the day before, which were clearly a, you know, at the very least anti-Semites and very clearly white supremacists. That clarification and that nuance it still leads to a president who is siding with um, aggressors, with white supremacists, and calling them good people. Yes. And more recently, when protests broke out regarding stay-at-home orders and shelter-in-place quarantine uh, in an attempt to squash the spread of the COVID-19 virus— and to flatten the curve, protesters were storming state capitals armed with assault-style rifles. Donald Trump again called them fine people, and police stood down. No one was issued a curfew. Armed protesters were allowed to scream in the face of law enforcement officers. And now we have videos of officers going up to civilians with their hands up, pulling down their protective masks and pepper spraying them? How is that defensible? What What's the worst thing that could have happened? What is the thing that I could not be seeing from the video? Oh, maybe, maybe a protester said something that a police officer didn't like. Well, guess what? If that's how thin your skin is, you should not be in charge of enforcing the law. People who are acting nonviolently should not have violence enacted upon them. And yet that is what we are seeing time and time again. And it's all being encouraged and fueled by Donald Trump's rhetoric. Yeah. You know, you know, if you if you talk the big talk for a long while that police officers should be able to use their force more forcibly and then what we're also seeing is that, you know, over the years he's been uh, saying that journalists are the enemy of the people. You know, some people are going to take that to heart. You know, for some people, it's not a nuanced game of, oh, well, Trump's mad at the media. So he calls them the enemy of the people in order to give them a bad rap and embarrass them. No, they're like, oh, they're the enemy of the people which has resulted in some videos of police officers just opening fire on media uh, media personalities uh, reporting on the scene with rubber bullets. Um, and, you know, and other videos punching cameramen. And, you know, I don't get it. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I do get it in the sense that Trump has been using his rhetoric for a long time to stoke these angers, to stoke these tensions. And then what do you know? It comes out at some point. 
And what's truly chilling about the attacks on journalists is that they know that they're on camera. And yet they understand and believe that they can inflict violence upon non-combatants, journalists protected by our Constitution, and do so with impunity. That is extraordinarily chilling, because if the man at the top doesn't care, how are anyone down the chain of command, how is anyone down the chain of command supposed to care? There's oftentimes a lot of questioning of how much leadership really matters, how much can leaders really do. And one way that leaders are extremely important is in setting priorities. If the president of the United States makes something a priority, I'm not saying that he can wave a magic wand and get something done, but if the president tells you that this is his priority, people are going to work harder to get it done. And if a president says when the looting starts, the shooting starts, and that the press is the enemy of the people, this is the logical endpoint for that. Yeah. You know, people take cues from leaders. Um, you know, one thing, um, I, you know, I've taken some classes on management, even just, you know, at a company level, and they'll even say, you know, you got to lead by example. You got to, you know, in order for people below you to take something seriously, you have to take it seriously. And what Trump seems to have taken seriously is all of his little feuds. Take He takes seriously the idea that police should use their power. And he takes seriously that the media are the enemy of the people. And that also he seems to take seriously that protesters that go any way against any of his stated goals or what he believes to be his goals are also insurgents and the enemy of the people. You know, recently he just tried to declare Antifa a terrorist organization, which A... What a joke. Yeah, Antifa is short for anti-fascist which is not hardly even an organization, but more of a mobilization when populations see fascism. They often aren't super organized. It's a bunch of people who just kind of get together and fight off what they perceive as fascism when they see it. Now, does that mean... Furthermore... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you... Oh, just for... To my understanding... There is no domestic terrorist group designation on a federal level. Yeah, that was going to be my uh, that was going to yeah. be my point B was um, that there is no legal pathwork for declaring any domestic organization as a terrorist organization, which there has been discussion of whether they should be. You know, some people. The uh, the bright eyed version is that we could call white supremacist organizations terrorist groups. But then the worst case scenario is that you could call any political group that you don't agree with a terrorist organization. And Trump has certainly tried to do that by trying to label 
anti-fascists as terrorists, which is, you know, I will say maybe sometimes some people who claim to be Antifa go a little far, but that does not, they don't show up out of nowhere. They show up in response to perceived fascists. Yes. So when we try to make sense of what's going on, we're seeing huge clashes between nonviolent protesters and heavily armed police units all across the country, some of which have turned into riots, which includes the destruction of property, vandalism, and arson. And at this point, reports are extraordinarily conflicted as to the root cause of the actual rioting parts. Certainly, some segments of the protesters are extremely angry. However, there are reports that other groups are co-opting the anger surrounding police brutality and using that as a cover to loot and riot. But however you want to slice it, I think it's relevant to take a look at the efficacy of riots to achieve social change. And what we end up finding is that the results are mixed. The earliest example in American history of a successful riot, obviously, is the Boston Tea Party. The Patriots destroyed property, that being the tea, in order to protest the concept of taxation without representation. This was obviously successful, ultimately. It was an important moment in the American Revolution, which ultimately led to American independence. In 1968, there were protests and riots that broke out at the Democratic National Convention. And obviously, as we've talked about before on the show, this led to reforms within the Democratic Party and changes to the primary process. So it was an example of a riot with elements, destructive elements, leading to change. Most recently, in Baltimore around 2015, when Freddie Gray died in police custody, riots broke out in parts of the city, and the response by the police department in the city of Baltimore was to open up a full-scale audit of their department. And although ultimately perhaps not enough change came of it, we still were able to gain more information about the depth of wrongdoing within that city. Some protests and riots have not been as successful. Notably, 2005 riots in Paris ultimately led to immigrants being blamed, and we saw the results of this riot break France towards a more racist and nativist direction. The 1992 Los Angeles riots surrounding the beating of Rodney King ultimately may have caused more harm than good because it essentially scared white people so badly that it kicked off a bipartisan wave of tough-on-crime stances throughout the 1990s that still reverberates today. So, in terms of, are riots a good way to get a political point across? They can be, but I think that this entire discourse is used as a distraction, and there are a couple of words that feel especially relevant to me 
One being from Martin Luther King Jr. who said, riots are the language of the unheard, essentially asking us not to look at the content of the riot, but its context. What is happening that is causing people to feel so upset and so alienated that they turn to this form of protest? And it was John F. Kennedy who said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. It is incumbent upon us not to get distracted for the reason why all of this is happening. George Floyd was murdered. He is not the first and he won't be the last. What is really on trial here is the intersection of racism and police brutality. Yeah. Um, my thinking is generally that riots don't just happen. They happen for some reason or another. And, you know, one set of riots that I remember in recent memory was in Ferguson, Missouri, after the killing of Michael Brown. And the riots didn't, they were kicked off by the uh, death of Michael Brown. But that wasn't the only thing that people were rioting about. After a Justice Department review of the Ferguson police system, they found that the Ferguson police system relied heavily on ticketing its poorer citizens, who most were black, in order to fund the local municipal government. So basically, the poor citizens of the area were harassed and penalized so much to en enough to fund their government instead of actually having real taxes that would have been also levied against the rich people. And this came out in the riots because they were so fed up of being jockeyed by the police there that they just felt fed up. Michael Brown was the straw that broke the camel's back there. And it seems like a lot of riots are caused by an overstepping of police powers or state powers and then also... Uh, part of it is this kind of jockeying effect or a gaslighting, if you want to use a different term. So like the Boston Tea Party was not precipitated by a rise in taxes. It was actually spurred on by a decrease in the tea tax. But the reason why it was so infuriating was because the crown kept going back and forth on what the tax was going to be and the people of the you know of uh, the colonies had no say in it it didn't matter that the tax went down they were just tired of being jockeyed around like that like that their taxes could be changed so willy-nilly like that or you know like in ferguson like i said um that the police were just, you know, ticketing at every possible offense 
as a source of revenue and not as a means for correcting social ills. Or the Irish Spring protests that happened throughout the Middle East in the early 2010 in the early 20 teens. And you know, it, it was spurred by a fruit cart vendor who set himself on fire because he was enraged by the police harassing him every day about the legal status of his fruit cart. Um, there is something very powerful and very demeaning about being regularly harassed by state and police action. And this seems to be what people are writing about now because it's, we have gone through an era almost um, like six or eight years of this that has that was basically launched from the killing of Trayvon Martin. And through this, we have a good number of us have been exposed to these ills of society where it seems like particularly black men, although it happens to all genders and creeds are taken and jockeyed around by police and oftentimes end up dead through these, or at times end up dead through these activities. And it seems as though the police get off scot-free, you know, they maybe get a slap in the wrist. They resign. They are giving, uh, they are put on leave with pay or, you know, any number of these things, or it gets to the grand jury, you know, in Eric Garner's trial, the grand, you know, they failed to indict him and it's just infuriating to see these people while they are performing a great, you know, a societal good for the most part and should in some ways be granted some extra leeway than the average citizen would in respect to the law with handling people. They should not be able to have carte blanche with the law. They should not be able to do whatever they like in regards to policing. And this is what people are fed up about because it feels like the police departments are either resisting change or there is just a greater uh, cultural resistance to it that, you know, it seems to be that the cops are also hashing out in a lot of these protests. A lot of these protests are against, you know, the brutality of policing and then the police are wanting to express that they have the right to be brutal. So they're being brutal in these protests. And then the protesters are having more fuel for what they believe is happening. And it's being shown right in front of them. Yeah, I think that it is becoming harder and harder to deny these realities as I mentioned earlier, and I think that this is kind of the central theme here of this back end is racism is real and it's toxic. Police brutality is real and it's toxic. And when you put them together, you have the recipe for the social unrest that we are observing right now. And 
we have statistical evidence that empirically proves what we're talking about here. FBI data from 2015 shows that even though African Americans make up just 13% of the population, 31% of those killed by law enforcement officers are black. That is as clearly defined racism on a system level as you are ever going to find, folks. If you can't accept that, I have no ability to reason with you. And real-time video evidence shows us that instances of police officers overstepping their bounds and attacking nonviolent protesters are not isolated incidents. My stomach has been churned more times than I ever would have thought possible over this past weekend. Watching police officers indiscriminately pepper spray a crowd. Watching people standing with their hands up being struck by rubber bullets. Seeing a police officer come up to an unarmed man wearing a mask, pull the mask down and pepper spray him in the face. I'm not trying to say that every single cop is a bad person, but clearly enough cops feel like they can act with impunity, even on live TV. So the good cops that are out there don't amount to much when the system is so rotten all the way to the core. I have seen this play out through videos in Minneapolis, in Louisville, Denver, Austin, in my former home of Toledo, and right here in Indianapolis. We're not talking about a few bad apples. We have the video evidence to prove it, and we can't keep our heads in the sand any longer. The phrase in its full glory is not a few bad apples and oops, just some few bad apples. The phrase is a few bad apples will spoil the bunch. And if you have a few bad police officers, yes, they're bad police officers, but they spoil the, they, they spoil the rest of the officers in a way. Because people are less likely to take them at face value. You know, policing serves a very important societal function, but it has to be done right. Policing is, you know, policing explicitly is an expression of our morals in a democratic society. It is how we make sure that people live up to our, you know, what we have decided is living well, morally upstanding in a society. And if they aren't doing it in a societally good way, or there are a few people who are taking it to extremes and not exemplifying what we believe is good in society, then it's hard to take them seriously as a whole. And for exactly. And another thing is, is that it just seems like there there have been a number of police unions in this country who will make brazen 
threats against politicians who cross them or um, people who propose reforms or even just expose basic information about the inner workings of police offices. And it's just, it's chilling because it just seems that, yes, there may be a few bad apples, but for whatever reason, they're not wanting us to take the few bad apples out of the bunch. They want to keep all the bad apples in with the good apples, no matter what. Look, we all agree that in a society that's democratic, we need some amount of people out there to enforce the rules. But that doesn't seem to be what's happening here. Police should be accountable to the citizenry. But what's happening now is not, from what I can see, and again, I I can't speak to all cases, but enough cases to conclude that it's a systemic issue, not a desire to protect communities, but a desire to control communities. A desire not to back people up. To not seek law and justice, but to seek order. Order and control, yes. There was a video that circulated of people on their own porch, on their private property, with police ordering them to go inside, even though the curfew did not require people to be inside, it just required them to be off of public property. The people did not comply with this order because it wasn't a lawful order, and that's actually important to note. Be Complying with a police order does not mean that a cop can tell you to do anything and you have to do it. They have to be telling you to stop doing something illegal. Sitting on your own property does not violate curfew, is not illegal, and in this specific instance that I'm referencing, the order was not lawful. So they had every right under the Constitution to disobey or to ignore and they were shot with paint canisters. And there are seriously people out there saying, well, they should have just listened. But what society do we live in when we think it's okay that you have to listen to the person with the gun, whether or not what they're doing is lawful? That's not defensible. That's not American. At least it's not what our framework is designed for. It might sadly be American in practice, but that's not what we should be about. And to know that this is happening over and over again, police just ordering people to back up who are posing no threat, ordering disbursement of lawful, nonviolent, constitutionally protected protest and assaulting people physically when compliance is not immediate. This is the big story. People are being killed. People are being unlawfully controlled. And if we're not talking about that, we are losing and surrendering our liberty. Yeah. 
they are not acting as officers of the peace. Um, you know, normally the idea of police being at protests is to keep things from escalating. But it clearly seems to be that in a number of these protests, they are escalating. They are not they are not acting so much as officers of peace, but as counter protesters. They are protesting their own issues that they feel that they have. And I do not believe that that is just and it is not their side to fight or their place to fight. But they seem to be doing it anyway, being given the leeway to fight against people who just want them to be at least have the appearance of accountability at the very least where regularly if there is police misconduct, they are at least fired and kept from being police officers. And if the crime is great enough, being charged with one. But it has happened enough times where that doesn't happen and people are angry because we are a democratic society and the police just don't act as some benevolent force. They enforce what we believe is our values and it is at least not my values. And I suspect it's not Evan's values to just rub up populations in order to instill some sort of fear and some vague idea of order. Now we're all about good faith discussion here. And the one ingredient in the videos that I've been seeing that have been absolutely horrifying to me, the one element that's missing is often audio. So perhaps you might think to yourself, well, if people, even if we're not seeing them be violent, maybe they are instigating something, talking shit to the cops, and that would justify the actions that these police officers are taking. But my response is that there is absolutely nothing that could be said to the police officers that would warrant them to fire shots or gas or spray at protesters. There's this asymmetry of power that is being under discussed, making it seem like it's it's protesters against cops and, and the cops just have to look out for themselves when A... Police are being deployed to areas, entering into situations that they don't always need to be present for. And B, the fact that they are armed with extremely powerful and increasingly militarized weapons. Someone's word, no matter how rude or hurtful, should not be met in response with an actual weapon. And it's another one of those points where if you don't see and feel that asymmetry of power, I'm at a loss for how to proceed. It is so fundamental. You know, I've been thinking a lot about how, you know, a lot of comparisons have been made between the 
you know, the protests that say happened in Michigan about the, you know, the lockdowns and the, the protests that are happening now. And a lot of people will invoke race in that. And that certainly seems to be part of it. But, you know, there's some part of me that just thinks, well, they really didn't open up on the protesters at the COVID-19 protests because they were mostly armed, very well armed. And if they started anything, then it would be just a straight up bloodbath or have the potential to be one. Whereas the police can act at these, pro, you know, mostly peaceful protests because they know they can get away with it because they can do it and not have a threat on their lives. You know, I'm, I somewhat in one strain think, man, what if, you know, these people who are protesting for social justice came more armed because that is a right that seems to be afforded to them in this country. But then also just the fear of, greater escalation and how bad that is for society. Like I don't want to have to live in a society where you have to be armed to the teeth to express your angst at society through peaceful means. So I've been thinking about that and it's just, it's, it's an unfortunate conclusion to come to that maybe we wouldn't be seeing this widespread use of police powers if more of the people protesting it were armed themselves. Well, I think that's definitely an interesting observation, and I think that it definitely pushes us back to the JFK adage, those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want to believe that our freedom of speech and our First Amendment rights have the power to affect change nonviolently, and unfortunately that we're exploring the boundaries of that theory we're testing that to its limits and it does not seem like this will be letting up soon yeah especially with uh you know, COVID-19 happening, you know, being in the middle of a pandemic and a depression, people have time on their hands. And um, time and righteous energy. I think that's a really good point, Joe, because I think that obviously the specific act in the video of the George Floyd killing have been harrowing and a real call to action for people. But I think another ingredient as to why this specific instance has sparked so much is because we've all been quarantined for two months. We have a lot of pent-up energy, a lot of pent-up anger. Anything that is bothering people has just been, they've been stewing in it for months now. And as you say, this is something that you said to me in the pre-recording, this weekend protest doesn't have to end on Monday with, what is it, 40 million people newly out of work? Yeah. People have the time to keep these protests going. And also we're hitting a point where the weather is getting warmer. We're in this place where we're in this unholy cocktail of massive amount of summer energy, a massive amount of quarantine energy, 
sprinkle in the egregious video and people having free time on their hands due to unemployment at unprecedented levels. And this could go on for quite some time. Yeah, the weather this weekend was absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ripe for some protests. Um, Yes. And the scary thing is that no one is really able to adequately follow the social distancing and other public health guidelines. Some protesters are wearing masks, but they're all crammed together to the point where the masks are likely not going to be super effective. And things are not going back to normal. I'm not trying to shame anyone for going out and protesting, but it definitely feels like those fears of a second wave and of this resuming close quarters activity too soon are going to be realized and we could start to see a greater spread with all of these people gathered in large numbers for the protests. It's, uh, it's been something else and hell, you know, (laughs) just a week ago we had, we had thought about a, uh, an idea for a podcast with some other topics you know, we're going to have a good one. We're, we're happy we're playing ahead. And then all of a sudden this happened. And at first we were like, oh, we'll talk about it. But we'll still do the other stuff. And then it was like, oh, we need to talk this about this. This is the episode. This is yep. it. This is, uh, this is what we're doing. And, you know, we just spewed a, loss, a lot of words, but... At, at, at sometimes I feel at a loss for words. Just the culmination of it all happening, the whirlwind of what's going on. You know, it would be one thing if, you know, there were just protests and, you know, uh, I don't know, a target got burned down. That'd be something. But then also the police just fighting back. You know, I've seen countless videos of police officers trying to run over people in their cars. Like, it's absolutely nuts. And it just feels like so many people are, you know, this is sparked by George Floyd, but it almost feels like a lot of people are just using up the pent-up anger of the last decade of everything that's happened and hasn't happened all into this. Yeah, we are at the tipping point, the boiling point, whatever point you want to call it metaphorically. We are here. This is it. We are seeing it in real time. Yeah. After like a, quote, class of people going up through the system, seeing all these injustices and, you know, getting convinced that it's important. Here we are. This is like the man of this is the clearest manifestation of these issues that we've ever seen the most with the least wiggle room. It was a man who may have committed a petty crime killed in the process because for nothing other seemingly than a power trip. And that's where we're at. So 
I want to talk modest potential mitigating solutions. Is there anything that you want to get off your chest before we before we go there? I mean, I did listen to a a podcast. I think it was a five thirty eight podcast, and they had on a guy who studied police measures and. You know, when, you know, six or eight years ago, when we first started talking about this, we were kind of flying blind with, you know, what would have actually take for police forces to not use this excessive force in this racialized manner. And it seems to be from what the data shows is that, you know, it's not taking implicit bias classes or really hiring more black police officers in a, in a police uh, unit. It's more just the most effective things are super mundane, like having clearly defined, uh, you know, escalation rules, um, having clear rules about, you know, de deescalating at every cost, carefully, you know, exhausting every opportunity before using uh, lethal force, um, which seemed to be the most effective at curbing these the more heinous acts that we see. So there is at least some hope that we actually now have the data and a better understanding of what change could actually look like and what would actually be effective. So that's my two cents on that. So the first solution I want to float is to demilitarize police forces. There is a program, the 1033 program, which allows the U.S. military and the Department of Defense to transfer surplus military-grade equipment to local police forces and... This has caused both material and mindset issues that have led to escalating violence. A 2017 joint study by Gardner-Webb, University of Cincinnati, Stanford, and Harvard found a causal link, or the suggestion of a causal link, definitely a clear correlation, between the presence of military equipment and fatality rates within a community from law enforcement interactions. Essentially, when police agencies have more deadly equipment, they can be more deadly. But also, when you prepare people as militaristic and as in a, in a soldier-like mindset, that's the behavior that you're going to elicit from both the law enforcement officials and from the community. What the study found is that police fatalities are higher in a police precinct that is militarized because people act more aggressively towards the officers in those circumstances. So by ending the 1033 program, we can actually prevent deaths on both sides of the aisle when we talk about bringing down risk factors for policing. And Hawaii Democrat Brian Schatz has a bill in development to make this happen. We'll see what ends up happening. Although, you know, pre-polarization, 
we would have thought that this shouldn't be a partisan issue. In fact, my research turned up that in addition to a lot of left-leaning organizations advocating for a decrease in police militarization, so is the Koch Foundation and the Cato Institute, a libertarian group. So the, the data is clear and everyone seems to agree that we don't need the 1033 program. And yet, who knows if we even have a political system that can facilitate that repeal. Yeah, we seem to be uh, we seem to be reluctant as a society to admit when we are wrong, even just in some some sort of policy, like something that isn't like uh, you know damning to the character. Like we could have gone, oops, maybe maybe uh, putting more military equipment in the hands of police is not good for society, but then it becomes, uh, you know, a two sided issue. You know, I bet it's one of those things where you give the police that equipment now, you know, even somewhat legitimately, they not may not feel in say as safe without that equipment, but, you know, as your study sh- seems to show, is that it would be safer for them. But but then you also got to wonder is, you know, can you put the genie back in the bottle? You know, if you if you demilitarize, does that all of a sudden de-escalate things in the community enough? Or does that just heighten the risk for police officers? Because while they their ability to use force is diminished, the greater public doesn't let down. So, I mean, that's just spitballing, but you know, it's, it just, it it feels so hard to make any changes to our society. And, you know, I feel like this is, this has been the theme of our podcast for a good long while is, Hey, you know, there may be a problem. We should do something about it. But why can't we? And we're just at another one of them. Yeah. So the next potential solution that I want to float is in terms of police training. There are, you know, occasional quirks where you find something like in the state of Florida To become a licensed barber requires 1,200 hours of training, and to become a police officer requires 700 hours of training, and ha 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 that Florida's police officers aren't as well trained as their barbers. But for the most part, around the country, the amount of time and rigor it takes to become a police officer is more or less adequate. Unfortunately, standards aren't nationalized, which allows places like Florida to slip below the assumed bar if they choose to. And something that I would maybe like to see, and I'm not even sold on this, but it's it's an idea that's come up that I want to at least bring out into the open, requiring a college degree in criminal justice, criminology, sociology, something like that. Yeah, it could be before like before you can be admitted to the force. It could be some it could be like a professional degree. That is specifically mm-hmm. police officering or whatever. 
this is something I've had the idea for as well. Um, you know, policing is a tough job and we're always learning more about it. And it is a very tough job for the people who do it. But that doesn't just because it's tough doesn't mean we get to like cut some slack on it. You know, I have a feeling that, you know, the, you know, while police being a police officer has often been seen as a great job for working class people who don't know a whole lot, um, you know, didn't get the best grades, but had, you know, good character, they could become police officers. It seems to be that that, you know, with the greater expectation on police officers these days that that doesn't seem to quite be cutting it and that it should be a true profession where, you know, you have to meet some sort of minimum requirement to become one. And then also on top of that, uh, you know, have some level of retraining or staying current throughout their tenure as a police officer. Not just and many. Go ahead. Ma- many jurisdictions do yeah. have actually fairly extensive continuing education requirements. But as someone who has worked in a separate field that also requires continuing education, it's tough to say whether continuing education is effective or not. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's very easy to blow off on an institutional level. Basically I was working in the assisted living field for adults with developmental disabilities and we required a certain amount of continuing education hours, but it was just once a year, all the staff would get together and, you know, the, the nurse on staff would say, okay, now we're going to relearn how to do the part of your jobs that you do every day anyway, but you'll get the continuing education credit for it. So who knows? I mean, that's another thing where it has to be taken serious at the high level. Mm-hmm. You know, if that head nurse had decided, no, you can't just do things that we already know. You have to come and learn something new. Um, that'd be one thing. So it, but then again, you know, problem we keep learn, running into, Hmm. We can gra- build all these great institutions, but what if we have people in it that don't give a shit? Mm-hmm. You know, you can cover up a whole lot of incompetence by just saying, oh, you weren't taking it as seriously as you should. Um, yeah. So how do we start to construct systems that are impervious to people not taking it seriously? That's a challenge for moving forward and this idea i think should be baked into what i'm talking about police training andrew yang talks about reshifting incentives but i think maybe reshifting focus to things that really matter and this is something that you touched on already about focusing on the procedures that actually lead to decreases in violence and decreases in racial profiling something that you and i have talked about before though not necessarily on the podcast i don't think is the importance of cooling off periods. Research has shown us that police violence can often be traced back to the last call they went on. Police who 
were in a stressful environment previously are then more prone to committing acts of violence on their future calls. So perhaps mandatory cooling down periods after stressful responses could be part of the solution. Yeah. It seems like at this point we have a few solutions that, you know, we're not just shooting in the dark here. We're not just spitballing. It seems like there could actually be some good to come of it. You know, make sure that, you know, it just seems like if we make sure that police have to do whatever they can to de-escalate situations, and then also if they are exposed to traumatic events on the job, that after they are done cleaning up that site or that case or whatever it is at that time, then they are, they go home and decompress after it. You know, that could lead to a lot of change in the Mm -hmm. worst offenses. I mean, is it going to change the day to day? Maybe not. But really what we're after is we're trying to go after the worst offenses. You know, to use some sort of vague analogy, we're not going for the casual drinkers. We're going for the hard alcoholics. (laughs) Um Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. In some respects, um, you know, no, there will still be issues, but what we're really trying to do is make it so that people don't lose their lives. That is like, that is what you got to stop because you know people can endure everything but death, and yeah. just need to make sure that people aren't dying. And we do want to offer the caveat that even as we propose solutions, we understand that nothing is the cure-all and there is still so much work that needs to be done in this country on race and racism specifically. But maybe the, the last thing that I want to throw out here is the idea of civilian review boards, essentially outside organizations that can break the cycle of cops policing cops. And this is something that I know has a lot of popularity, but also at the same time, Minneapolis is one of the cities that has a civilian review board, and it didn't prevent this. So, Well, and one thing I think of sometimes is that I think states should have a uh, special prosecutorial office for police officers, um, because, you know, you often run into issues where the person who would prosecute a police officer oftentimes have to have a very good professional relationship with them as part of their Mm -hmm. job. Um, So it's very hard to bring a case against someone that has been a colleague. And if, you know, they've been a very good colleague, it makes it extra hard. Um, So possibly independent state prosecutors for police officers essentially is an idea i've had i think it's a strong proposal yeah so i think that i think that brings us to a tidy end unless you had anything else you wanted to add oh no okay we've said a lot at the end of this heavy episode um 
we'd like to say thank you for listening. Uh, we hope that our thoughts have inspired something in you or, you know, got you thinking about something. Um, we've definitely been thinking about this a lot. Um, we also are going to announce that we will not have an episode next week because um, at this time, this one has taken a a great deal and a great deal of emotion to do. So hopefully we'll come back reinvigorated in two weeks. Um, Evan, is there anything else you want to add? This is a, an extraordinarily difficult time that we are all trying to process together. Do not let your commitment to justice fade. Do not let your commitment to loving your brothers and sisters fade. Yeah. Yeah. And all, as always, we'd like to thank Anthony Hitch for the music. And anyway... My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.